Peter, 1 Peter, and we are still in chapter 1, which is packed full of theology for us. 1 Peter, chapter 1. We began this section uh, beginning in verse 3. And uh, this message from the Apostle Peter regarding the joy of our salvation. Verses 3 through 12 in the original language are actually just one, that's one sentence. I know we have it broken up into eight or nine different verses here, but that's actually one sentence in the Greek. And so we want to kind of keep that together because that's the, we lose the train of thought here if we skip around. Because if you're not careful, it would look like, Peter's talking about the joy of our salvation, then he skips over to trials, then he comes over to love, and then a little bit of faith, and then he comes back to trials again, then he wants to talk about prophets. But that's not what's happening. What he's actually doing is, in this one long sentence, the main theme here is the joy of our salvation. He doesn't want us to miss the joy of our salvation. The joy we have in our salvation Peter wants to remind us, can withstand any storm, any trial, any temptation, any hardship. In fact, Peter tells us that we should not only have joy in our salvation in good times, but that we should rejoice in the joy of our salvation, even during serious trials in our life. And that before we look at these verses specifically, I want you to be reminded that it's important to Peter to bring up the subject of joy because his listeners needed to be reminded of this. Let's not forget who he's writing to. This context is very important here. They are under persecution. They are despised. They are hated. They are rejected by many people because of their faith. They're facing difficulties that in a very real sense, at least from a worldly perspective, should have destroyed any sense of joy that they were uh, could possibly conjure up, if you will. The world, because its hope is in temporal things of today, has every reason to respond like that. So when things are going bad, when things are in disarray, when things seem chaotic, the world feels like it's just completely on the edge here, that things just aren't right. Matter of fact, I actually track things like that. It's kind of like this general sense of how things are going. And that's how the world responds, especially in times like right now. These times of uncertainty, and these times of anxiety, and these times of worry, where if your hope is pinned to the things of this world, you're really feeling that right now. You're really sensing this sense of uh, a lack of equilibrium, a lack of balance in your life. But Peter wants to remind his readers to understand that you aren't like the people of this world. For those of us who have a living hope through Jesus' resurrection, we cannot respond like the world. Matter of fact, he's going to challenge us to think differently about this. We are but strangers and aliens on this earth, and our citizenship is in heaven, not here. Our hope is tied to the things in glory, not here. And so we don't respond the same way the world does when it feels like everything is upside down and chaotic because our hope is not pinned to the things of this world. 
This is not our home, as the old hymn says. We're just a passing through. We're sojourners. We're, we're aliens. We're pilgrims in this world. Spiritually speaking, this is not our home. Our home is in heaven. So how should we respond then? Because we don't think like the people of the world. We don't talk like the people of the world. We don't act like the people of the world. And though in many ways we seem just like them, deep down we are fundamentally different. How should we respond then when suffering arrives? Well, that's what our verses are going to help us to look at there this, here this morning. They help us to understand what keeps us going during these trials. What keeps us going in these times of uncertainty? Why we respond with rejoicing through our trials? Why do we do that? Well, the simple answer is that we do that because of Jesus Christ. Because Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The world doesn't understand this because the world doesn't know Jesus. Now that's the real explanation. So let's back up for a minute and review quickly our notes because they're all tied together from verse 3. So I just want to refresh you here in this passage before, uh, before we jump into our couple verses here today. But before we do, let's go to Lord in prayer, shall we? And ask him to bless our time in his holy word. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, for all that you've gathered here today. Lord, we cling to the truth that your word never returns to you void, that it accomplishes exactly what you intend for it to accomplish in the heart of each and every person here today. And so, Father, as we pray each week, we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. So as we hear the message today, Lord, we ask ourselves first, Lord, what would you have me do with this? How should I respond in a way that would glorify you? Father, help us not to be tempted to be listening to a message and always be thinking, well, this, the person next to me really needs to hear this, or a person at home really needs to hear this. Father, may we apply it to our lives first and foremost, for your honor, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, find your way over to verse 6, if you will. This is where we looked at last week in verses 6 and 7. And we kind of tie this back with verses 3 through 5. So let's look here. Verse 6, we read, uh, our, our point last week is that we rejoice that God is sovereign over all of our trials. We rejoice that God is sovereign over all, all of our trials. We talked about this last week. God takes all whom he loves through trials. There are no exemptions, my friends, none. Trials are the mark of discipleship. And they're a powerful testimony of Christ's love as he works in our hearts and transforms us more and more into the likeness of his son. Trials is one of the ways that he uses to do that. And so as a believer, we welcome that, that God is doing something in our hearts, transforming us to be more and more like Jesus, and quite frankly, less and less like us. Because our entire time on this earth is in preparation for eternity with him. And so he is molding and shaping and chiseling off the rough spots as he prepares us for eternity. And guess what? Along the way, he's going to accomplish his will in your life and everybody he brings into the, your sphere of influence in your life to accomplish his sovereign will. 
What a great God we serve. No one loved by him is exempt from trials, not a single one of us. Look at the beginning of verse 6. He says here, in this, now what is again is he referring to? In this you greatly rejoice. In the text here, he's pointing us back to verses 3 through 5. He wants to remind you that this joy of your salvation, he wants to remind you why you have joy in your salvation. So Peter says, hey, verse 3, you've been given a new birth into a living hope through the resurrected Jesus Christ. Rejoice, have great joy that you are a new creation in Christ. Rejoice the fact that you're not the same anymore, that there was a time when you were dead as dead could be spiritually to God. And now you are alive in Christ. Rejoice in that. That should bring you great joy in your salvation. Then in verse 4, rejoice that your inheritance is undefiled, that it's incorruptible, that it never fades away. You don't ever have to worry about losing it. Nothing could ever change that. It'll never perish. It'll never spoil. It'll never fade. Why not? Because God is protecting it for you. Verse 5, we rejoice in our eternal security that though the believer may die, we are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation. So yes, we can rejoice in our new birth, our inheritance, and our eternal security. But Peter suggests that we can do that even through our trials. How? By realizing that God is sovereign over our trials. That he's got his eye on the clock and the hand on the temperature gauge. And he is watching each and turning the heat up and turning it down and watching the clock. You're not in your trials, my friends, one millisecond longer than you need to be to accomplish God's purpose in your life. When you say, I don't know if I can handle anymore, he knows exactly how much you can handle, how much is needed. No tear is wasted in the midst of a trial. Every aspect of your trial is necessary. There's no wasted movement in your trial, except on our part, not on God's part. It's all there for you, transforming you more and more to be like Jesus. Every single aspect. Now, that doesn't mean that we're enjoying it at the moment, but it does mean that it's necessary and that he's sovereign over every single aspect of that trial. He's sovereign over what you're going to gain from each one. He's, he's, everything he sends is necessary. Every trouble is part of the plan of God. No unnecessary teardrop. He does all things for a purpose, and sometimes suffering is even part of that purpose. So, for what purposes are these trials so necessary in my life? We looked at just a few last week. Sometimes these trials are necessary to turn us away from sin. We're embroiled in something, and we won't get out of it. And God has nudged us and moved us and brought people in to admonish us and was stuck in that sin. And God will say, well, I guess I need to turn up the heat here a little bit. I need to get your attention. I think of the 
remember in 1 Corinthians 11 when they were abusing the Lord's Supper, right? They had turned it into a big party and they were feeding themselves first and they had forgotten the whole purpose of communion. Remember in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, he said uh, he brought weakness and sickness and even death on them. So sometimes trials are necessary to protect us from the sin. 2 Corinthians 12, 7, we find another reason sometimes are necessary, again, not only to turn us away from sin, but to protect us from sin. 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul said, uh, you know, I have this thorn in the flesh, right? To keep me from exalting myself. In other words, to stop me from being so prideful. I'm so thankful that the Apostle Paul is the only person that really struggles with pride in this room. So I know it's a narrow message, but hopefully it'll apply someday to us. Trials also are ultimately needed in order for us to grow in character. As we go through trials, my friends, our character is formed. And if we look to God and we trust in his word and rely and trust on his presence, we produce the harvest of righteousness. He works in and through us to produce peace and patience and endurance and love and joy. They're the fruits of our trials. And there's a harvest for those who have been trained through the fire of trials. And let me remind you, for those who don't respond the right way, we often replace God with something else when we're going through a trial, which often leads us into a deeper, darker place. Lastly, trials are necessary in order to equip us for ministry. I think of 2 Corinthians 1, 4 through 6, right? I comfort you with the comfort that I have received through my affliction. I can comfort you in any affliction because I've been comforted by God through my affliction. So I can point you in the right way. I can minister to you. I don't have to go through the same exact suffering that you have. I just know that I was suffering also or I was in a trial and this is how God so that was verse 6. Verse 7, we rejoice that the trials purify our faith. Or another way to put that would be they prove the genuineness of our faith. Peter says, here's why trials produce joy, because if you pass through the test, your faith becomes proven. Now, listen carefully here. God's purpose in trouble is to test your faith, but test it for whom? already knows your heart. He already knows exactly how you're going to respond. Does God need to do something to find out if your faith is genuine? No, he knows your heart. So who is this test going to benefit? Who is going to be helped in this suffering or this trial? It's not God, my friends. It's us. We're the ones who see that I went through this very difficult trial, instead of trying to rely on something else, I trusted completely in Christ, and he carried me through yet again. And your faith is strengthened by that. And your heart is encouraged. Lastly, we saw in verse 7 that our trials, we rejoice that our trials have eternal significance. One day you will stand before God.
verses 8 and 9. Let's look at our text here now. Verses 8 and 9. Peter is going to tell us the results of rejoicing in your salvation. In other words, here's why you have joy in your salvation, verses 3 through 7. Here's the results of what happens when you trust in God through the midst of your trial. Look at verse 8 first. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, inexpressible and full of glory. So let's look at this first one. I'm going to give you four simple points here are what are the results of rejoicing in our trials. Here's the first one. Point number one, through our trials, our love for Christ is strengthened. Now you see that word you in uh, verse 8? You have not seen him. His readers had not seen the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are reading this epistle and they're gathering in the church, they've not, they've not seen Jesus face to face. But Peter had. Peter had seen the Lord in the flesh. They had not seen Christ face to face, but Peter had. They had not known Christ personally and walked with him and ate with him and ministered with him and saw those miracles, but Peter had. Peter had done all that. And though they were only a generation away from the actual events recorded in the Gospels, to them it was just as much history as it is for you and I. But seeing is not believing, my friends. Because most of the people who saw him in the flesh didn't believe him. If that's all it took, but you could just see him, and then you know, and then your faith would be secure. The problem with that is lots of people saw him, and they still didn't believe. It wasn't a question of sight. I think about the Israelites who traveled all. They saw the Shekinah glory of God. Filling, I saw the heavens open up, Shekinah glory come down from heaven, and rest between the cherubims over the Ark of the Covenant. They watched a, you know, a pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of cloud by fire. They watched the Red Sea open up. And what did they do? They rejected God. How much more did they need to see? See, seeing is not believing. It's never a question of, oh, I just need a little more proof and then I'll believe. The belief issue, the trust issue is a heart issue. It's not a sight issue. It never has been. The religious leaders by large rejected him even today he is unseen but he's not unloved usually today we love someone that we've seen someone we have a shared experience with someone we built a relationship with but these Christians had never met Jesus Christ like us they never looked in his face they never ate with him they never walked with him they never heard his voice they never gazed into his eyes and yet Peter says you love him you love him for the believer, one of the results of going through trials is that Christ goes through them with us. And in the trial, we experience this deep intimacy with him. We cling to Jesus' words in Matthew 28. I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you've ever been through a trial like that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're clinging 
us to get through it and even experience the sweetest joy. You will find, beloved, that, that it's in the fire that your, your relationship with Christ expounds the most, expands the most, is deepened the most, is when you're in that place where you got nothing left and all you have is Christ, which incidentally is all you need. But when that's all, when he's all you have, you know it. It's not just an experiential thing. It's not just an emotion. You know in your heart of hearts that he is there with you, carrying you through. And you know that he loves you, and you know that you love him. Shack, Shadrach, and Abednego. And they're thrown into the fire. Right? Remember the king looks in and then he asks, didn't we put three in? Why is there four in there? And he's shining like the Son of God. Many of you have experienced it in the midst of the trial. God's presence is so powerful that even though you can't see him, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is there with you. Beloved, the object of that love that you experience in the midst of your trial is not a feeling. It's not a religion. It's not a building. The object of your love is Jesus Christ, and that love is strengthened through your fiery trials. You trust in his presence, and you experience an ever-strengthening love for him. So point number one, through our trials, our love for Christ is strengthened. Look at point number two. Through our trials, our faith in him is reinforced. It is by faith that we believe and trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. We believe and trust in his work is, is the expression of God's love to us. And in response to his love, we love in return. And we do all of that by faith. No, we trust in our hearts. Keep your place in 1 Peter and go over a couple books to your right into 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. We have come to know and have what? Believed the love which God has for us. Incidentally, that know there is not just know intellectually, it's know experientially. Epigonosco. It means to not just know, I know about something, I know a fact. This means I know because I know in my heart. I've experienced this. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love, why? Because he first 
We not only live by faith, beloved, we love by faith. We love by faith. The more faith can know of Christ and have that knowledge possess our hearts, the stronger the love becomes. Because the more faith believes the truth of Christ and the marvelous, we see how magnificent he is, and the more we see that, the more our trust manifests love to the one who is so magnificent. So believing and loving, loving and believing, that defines this intimate communion that we have with Christ. You love him and you believe in him. What does that love and belief look like in the life of a believer? Dr. MacArthur here helps us. He says, you long to serve him with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. You don't just think about it. You long to do that. You see, he has done so much for me. I long to serve him. I long to, I long to know more about him. I long to be in his word. I long to be in his house. I long to be with his people. I want to know as much as I can. I can never get enough. I want to know. I want to talk with him. I want to read about him. I want to fellowship with him. The desire to know him better, to study him more deeply. You're compelled in your heart to want to be like him. That's the expression of love and trust and belief in relationship. That's why we can rejoice. Because in every trial, you're drawing closer to Joy, 
but that we're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy in the midst of our trials. That's the part that we miss. You might even go as far to say that fiery trials bring inexpressible joy because the harder the trial, the greater the joy. How can that be? How can it be that you can have inexpressible joy, not just happiness in the midst of a trial, in the midst of suffering? I mean, only someone who enjoys suffering would rejoice for the sake of suffering. If, that, if that's all it was, why would you rejoice? But as believers, we don't rejoice in the trials and the suffering. We rejoice in the results of the trials and the suffering. Big difference. We rejoice with inexpressible joy that God is sovereign over every single one of our trials. We rejoice that every single one of these trials is producing something in us that transforms us more and more to be like Jesus. We rejoice that every single trial in which we endure, our faith is proven genuine to ourselves and to all around us. We rejoice that every trial in which we trust in his word and his presence, we go closer and closer to our Lord and Savior. We rejoice with inexpressible joy, the love we know in our hearts for him and the love we know he has for us. We rejoice in every trial that we can cling to his promise and believe in our hearts that he will never leave us nor forsake us, no matter how bad the trial gets. We rejoice that our love for him is strengthened and our faith for him is reinforced. We rejoice, we rejoice, we rejoice in him in the midst of our trials with inexpressible joy, full of God's glory. The greatest contradiction in the world is a joyless Christian. Once when Martin Luther was going through a period of depression, which he struggled with, his wife Katie came into the study wearing all black and her face was covered with a black veil. And Martin Luther said, my dear Katie, she said, well, God did it. And Martin Luther said, simplify it. God hasn't died. She said, oh, I thought by the way you were acting that God had died. She wanted to remind him that Jesus is alive and that God is in control even in the midst of our fiery trials. Let us not be like the world whose entire happiness is rooted in temporary Let us show the world we can rejoice with inexpressible joy, full of glory, even when we're suffering because we love him and our faith is rooted in him. Point number one, through our trials, our love for Christ is strengthened. Through our trials, our faith in him is reinforced. Through our trials, we experience inexpressible joy in him. Let's look at verse 9. He says, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Point number four, through our trials, our salvation in him is realized every day. Through our trials, our salvation in him is realized every day. That word obtained there is an athletic term that it speaks of receiving a reward at the end of a long struggle. And so Peter is saying, keep your perspective in the midst of your trials and you will obtain this great hope. But he's not talking here about a future hope. 
because the verb that he obtained here is in the present tense, in the middle voice. What does that mean? You could literally translate it like this. You are presently receiving for yourselves the outcome of your faith. You are presently receiving for yourselves the outcome of your faith. What is the outcome of my faith that I'm presently receiving? The salvation of our souls. Now let me tell you, Peter is not, Peter is not saying that the salvation of your souls is dependent upon your work. Are we all clear there? Right? Not saying that. I want to remind you, you have three stages of your salvation. You have a, your salvation in past tense, right? The moment you believed, you were saved, nothing changes that, you are saved. But then you have another aspect of your salvation, don't you? Where you're presently being saved in the present tense. What does that mean? That's the idea of sanctification, right? I am working out my salvation with fear and trembling. God is working in and through me to chip away all of those rough spots. So I am saved, but I'm also working out my salvation. And then, of course, what's the next one? The future tense of our salvation. That's glorification, right? Where one day we'll be in heaven and our salvation is complete. So what stage is Peter talking about here? He's talking about the present tense, this sanctification, this part of working out our salvation. The proven result of your proven faith and love for Christ is this ongoing deliverance that you enjoy right now. See, sometimes we go through trials and we think, okay, well, I'll be worth it because I'll get to heaven and then I'll get, that's true. But Peter wants to remind them, you know, there are aspects of your salvation right now be rejoicing in. You don't have to wait till glory. You don't have to wait till glory to realize this. Because right now, because of your salvation, you have been rescued from sin and guilt and condemnation and wrath and ignorance and distress and confusion and hopelessness and everything that's fallen and defiled. You are delivered from the power of sin and sin no longer has dominion over you. You are no longer enslaved to it in exchange for what he gives us is new life and inexpressible joy. Joy not just in the future, but in the present because you are presently being delivered from all that is corrupt and defiled around you. There is no trial that ever comes your way that the Lord does not make a way of escape. Beloved, you need to tap the resources of joy you as a Christian. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, 11? He said, these things I've spoken unto you that my joy might be where? In you. In you. That your joy might be full. He wasn't talking about a future joy. He was talking about the joy right then, right there, right now. And we will know that joy as we focus on the great results of our salvation. Beloved, the greatest sermons I have ever heard were not preached from pulpits, but from sick beds. The deepest truths of God's words have often been taught by those humble souls that have gone through and graduated the school of affliction. 
The most cheerful people I have met, with few exceptions, have been those who had the least sunshine and the most pain and the most suffering in their lives. The most grateful people I've ever known were not those who traveled a pathway where there were no obstacles and no challenges in their entire life, but those who were often confined to their homes, some to their beds, and had learned to depend on God. I can remember visiting a young man who used to go to this church, and then he was stricken with MS. Couldn't, couldn't walk, was confined to a bed. And I would go and, and minister to him. And he would say, you know, Pastor, God is either going to cure me now and I'm going to get up out of this bed and I'm going to go serve him. Or God will take me home and I'll be dancing in the streets of gold again. That's joy, my friends. That's joy inexpressible and full of glory. The complainers, on the other hand, are usually those who have the least to complain about. The men and women who are most cheerful most grateful for the blessings of Almighty God are often those who have gone through the greatest trials. My friends, Peter wants us to think of suffering in a completely different way than before we trusted in Christ. He doesn't want us to just begrudgingly concede that suffering is inevitable. It's unavoidable, so just, you know, bite your lip and get through it. That's not what he's talking talking about rejoicing in your suffering, knowing that it's a normal part of your experience as a believer, which produces good in us and brings God glory. It's part of the process which leads to the glory of God and to our full and final and complete salvation when we are face to face with Christ. And when the fiery trials come, we have the word of God as our hope and strength presence of God as our reassurance. Fear not. Trust in him. Rejoice in this Christ who you've not seen yet you love. And you know that he loves you. And by loving and believing in him, we are even now experiencing the sanctification of your souls. Every time you go through one of these trials and rejoice and depend on him and not on all of the worldly faith is strengthened, you're growing in Christ-like character, you're providing a powerful witness to all those around you, that no matter what happens in your life, you will never take your eyes off Jesus. I can't tell you how powerful that is to everybody that's around you. Many of you know people like that in your own lives, don't you? Where it just seems like, boy, if there ever was a person you would think would have walked away from the faith, it would have been that person. Because they've been dealing with this, and that I don't know if I could do that. But God carries us through, and your character is refined by that. You're going to grow, and you're going to provide a powerful witness in their lives. And God will use that. Knowing Christ is God's promise to us as his faithful children. We love Christ now. We will see him later.
trust him now? We'll see him face to face someday. We have joy now? Soon. Trust in his word and trust in his presence. 